This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 22nd, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Russell Jander. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Open up our Bibles um, as we're going to read in uh, God's Word today. We'll be in Titus chapter 3, and we're going to go from verse 9 to the end. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need, and do not be unfruitful. For all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Well, <clears throat> good morning. I am glad to be here. We are, or have been, in the book of Titus now for seven weeks. This is the seventh week, and we will be done. We'll be going into Haggai. Next week, that is a book in the Bible, but you will learn more about that next week. We've spent the last seven weeks in this book, and it's a letter actually written to a young pastor named Titus, who is helping a bunch of young church plants become good, healthy churches. And that's why we titled it Good Church, because in this letter that is sent to this guy helping these young churches, it kind of gives us a a framework or a guide for what makes a healthy church. And so from this letter, we've learned that a good church or a healthy church or a faithful biblical church is a church that begins and ends, is centered on a good God who saves bad people. And He does this through what we call the good news, the gospel, and He gathers them into these assemblies called churches. And then, by grace, with some guidelines and principles, he appoints good leaders who are called to shepherd these churches, and they are to primarily live and teach good doctrine rooted in the gospel. And what makes these men qualified is not that they're the super-Christians among Christians, that they truly believe and live out the gospel in their lives. These are leaders whose primary job is to help the members commit themselves to this thing called good discipleship, which we've talked about. And in the simplest form, it's Christians helping other Christians, disciples helping other disciples follow Jesus better as they follow Jesus. That's men and women, young and old, helping one another be the church and grow 
into maturity in Christ. And at the very end, or where we've kind of ended, so to speak, Titus is told by Paul that God's good grace it what, is actually what makes them able and willing to actually live these Christian lives. And they're lives that are of people zealous for, ready for, and devoted to these things called good works. He uses that term many times in this letter. And we said that good works are primarily so that grace go to more people and glory goes to God. And the question is, with all these good things, a church centered on a good God with good leaders and good doctrine and good discipleship with the Gospel at the forefront, how do you keep that healthy? Like, it's one thing to get healthy. How do you keep it healthy? And that's where we're at today. So I'm going to pray that God would use our time and a text that, honestly, I think most of us would probably dismiss if we didn't preach a sermon on it. Because the end of a letter, like how often do we focus on this sincerely? Right? How often do we spend time on that? We usually, okay, next letter. Same with the greeting. We need to spend time here because God breathed it out for us to learn from. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. Every detail of it. All too often, Lord, we come to the Scriptures forgetting that they are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and they can cut us deep in ways that nothing else in this world can. So I ask that You'll do that today. The Holy Spirit, You'll move us out of the way. You will teach what needs to be taught. You will bring conviction when there needs to be conviction. Comfort where there needs to be comfort. Instruction where there needs to be instruction. And salvation for those who need to be saved. Open up Your Word to us, Lord, and show us what it means to be a healthy church. And then help us to be that healthy church because we confess we cannot do it on our own. That we need Your grace not just to save us, but to move us and to keep us faithful. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, before Jesus saves somebody, this is going to be a weird statement, but it's true. Before Jesus saves someone, you have one enemy. And that enemy is God. The big enemy. The biggest enemy. Before Jesus saves you, your one and only enemy is God. The Bible says that while you were enemies, hostile toward God, we were reconciled by God, right? He came to his enemies and he gave them new hearts and new desires and adopted them into his family through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. But when we became God's friends, when he redeemed us and adopted us and we became His children, citizens in His kingdom, we suddenly had three new enemies. And that enemy, number one, is Satan. The second is the world. And the third is our flesh. Warring against us. All three of those enemies want to kill you particularly your relationship with God and your relationship with one another, the two things that the Bible says are key to your identity. They want to destroy our faith and they want to destroy our church or at least keep the church or your faith unhealthy and distracted enough so as to hinder its effect on the world. 
See, a good church, again, a good church, as we've been talking about, becomes a bad church when its members don't commit to something. Like all those good things. How do you keep that in line? I'll argue it's good discipline. I know it's a loaded term. Like if you're younger, you're like, discipline? Right? That's spanking. Right? Wait, wait, hold on. Or as an adult, you're like, discipline? I know where this is going. Maybe you don't. If you turn to the book of Acts, I'm going to be in the Bible a couple different places. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's like Luke part two. Okay, Acts. We're going to be in the book of Acts. It's going to be rad. Right after Easter. Spent a lot of time there. But in the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to some elders of a church. They're the Ephesian elders. He has loved the Ephesian church more than almost any church. Spent a lot of time there. Had a huge impact on the city. And now he is leaving. He knows that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He expects that he'll be martyred. And so he's talking to these elders, kind of giving him his, his last lecture, his last words, telling him, okay, this is what you can expect. I'm probably not going to see you again. This is how I've served you. This is how you should serve others. And he gives them some very specific things. He says this in Ephesians, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 20, and in verse 28, but most of the chapter is him speaking. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's speaking to the elders. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Like, this isn't your church, guy. This is Jesus' church. So take care of it in a particular way. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he warns this church. It's a new church. It's a church plant. He warns its leaders and its elders, look, danger is going to come from within when I leave. Problems will come from within. And so he is going to argue, he doesn't use the term, but they are going to have to be disciplined in how they shepherd the church. And when we hear the word discipline, we usually think about punishment. And while there is, I would argue, a rare but a certain time and place for formal discipline in the life of the church. And maybe you've been in a church where that, you've had that experience, not yourself, but you've seen it played out. Formal discipline, church discipline in a church. There's a time and a place for that. I would argue that there actually is a greater need for a different kind of discipline as a regular rhythm of the life and health of the church. The kind of training to help people follow certain rules of behavior. And you're like, oh, where are you going with this? Just follow with me. Certain rules of behavior. Certain rules of relationships. For the purpose of developing character in one another, which is our goal, to help one another mature, but also for the purpose of protecting relationship with one another. There's got to be some kind of guidelines. See, more often than not, when good churches become bad churches, and all that that means, it's not just because of bad doctrine. That happens. That certainly happens. 
But I would argue that more often, good churches become bad churches because of bad relationships with one another. And that's where Paul is spending his time at the end of this letter telling Titus about what all these churches should do. See, without good discipline, without really good instruction, without correction, without sometimes even separation from one another, we will struggle to live like family. As all families would, because we don't know how to do relationships with people who are different than me. We're very different in lots of ways. And if we're not trained or if we're not taught or instructed or reminded of how to live together differently, we will have problems. See, at the end of this letter, Paul addresses the reality of the nature of the church. That it is full of different kinds of people with different salvation stories, different convictions, different passions, different giftings, different things, different preferences. And even though some of those differences, especially in some of the maybe most difficult people, because there are difficult people, okay, and I include myself in that. I'm a difficult person given the perfect conditions. Normally I'm awesome. But no, I mean, we're all difficult in our own ways. And there are some of those difficult people that, that as Paul is writing about, are false teachers, are wolves. There are those wolves that are among us, that come in among us, that need to be shot, not shepherded. Figuratively, okay? I pastor say you should shoot wolves. Well, you should, but you know what I mean. But most difficult situations, relationships, actually the result of members who actually just need good discipline. And by that I mean they need to be taught sometimes what to believe, but sometimes they need to be taught how to hold what they believe. Now, Paul seems to address three different kinds of people. So I'm going to try and address all three. And if you feel like you fall into one of those categories, I'm not talking to you. I wasn't like going, oh, I'm thinking about Bob now, right? That's not the way it works. But he addresses three different kinds of people, all different. And when I call them the debaters, the different debaters, like we're different, we're debating different things, the dividers, and then we'll call them the different disciples. Different debaters, different dividers, and different disciples. So let's talk about the different debaters. The first kinds of people that Paul addresses. Now, different debaters is this term that I'm making up, but it probably best describes those members of the church who have made the approval of a cultural issue, a personal preference, or a secondary doctrine more important than the unity of the church. Now, About these people, here's what Paul writes. He says, but avoid. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now this isn't the first time Paul says this. In fact, he says this in all of his pastoral epistles, and he says it in some of his other epistles as well. 
The pastoral epistles are full of warnings to young pastors to avoid certain people and things. To avoid worthless controversies. To avoid quarrels. To avoid debates. Over and over again, Paul warns these pastors to avoid irreverent babble. Avoid controversy over words. Avoid speculations which are never going to help anyone and will probably hurt someone. And this is how I read the Bible. When I see Paul repeat a warning over and over and over and over and over again, what that communicates to me is this is probably likely to happen. This is going to happen a lot. Like this is the early church. And if you spend any time in church or any time in leadership, you realize that this happens a lot. And we unfortunately fall to the temptation to engage when we ought avoid. See, the debaters actually aren't dividers. They're different. I don't believe the debaters are trying to divide the church, trying to destroy the church, trying to make factions in the church. The debaters actually just are draining. They're just draining. And what they do, and I say this from personal experience, but maybe you've had this experience too, is that the, the debaters tend to wear out people. And I say have this experience, what I mean is not, oh yeah, you've met this person. I'm like, well, you could be this person too, right? You could have experienced this from someone or you could have given someone this experience. So the debaters are someone that wear out people and pastors talking and emailing and calling and complaining or just posting because I just can send something out in the world and it doesn't matter about their particular pet issues. And there are all kinds of different debates that can happen. Like, we don't have a shortage of things to argue over in our culture. Um, but there are four basic debates that Paul warns against. So, the first one, he says, is foolish controversies. And like I said, there's no lack of controversies. There seems to be a new controversy popping up all the time in the church, outside the church, everywhere. And it seems to me the ones that cause the most conflict in the church, because there's all kinds of controversies outside, but what happens is when the church and culture kind of collide, and then you have people or bloggers or uh, just pastors or authors begin to start their statements with, well, Christians should or Christians should not do this or that. Like a very declarative thing about a cultural issue. And this includes like, well, Christians should vote for this person or Christians should not vote for this person. Christians should support this or Christians should not support this. Christians should spend their money on this or if you're a Christian, you should not spend your money on this. It goes over and over again and they're all cultural issues driven by often believers who are trying to argue that this thing that's important to me should be just as important to you. But the Bible doesn't say that. And so what happens, it just creates debate. And it's not debate to come to agreement. It's debate for you to just listen to me talk and I'm going to listen to you talk and when you take a breath, I'm going to talk and nothing really is accomplished. It's not, it's not furthering unity. It's actually just showing how separate we might be. So what does Paul say? Avoid it. Just avoid it. He also talks about genealogies, which seems weird for 
our day because it's not like we're pulling out our family trees in the middle of service to be like, yeah, you know what my uncle did. So it's not like that. And Titus's day is a little bit different because it's really, uh, there's a large Jewish contingent and the Jews were had for centuries used their genealogies to dispute or prove their identity uh, as tribes and as nations or just as family. When I, we go through Haggai, you'll see when the exiles return back to Jerusalem, they actually pull out the lists. And they start going like, okay, what family are you part of? Like, mm, we don't find you on the list. You can't be a priest or whatever. Like, they're real serious about it. Well, that bled into the church. And it bled into the church in such a way where they, they uh, began to kind of create superiority or inferiority complexes based off of their genealogy. Now, we don't do that. We're not practicing, although I am Jewish, we're not practicing those things uh, in our church. Um, but what I do find in terms of, if I can make this connection, um, we don't have like literal genealogies that we use, but we do have spiritual ones that we leverage. We have kind of spiritual family uh, genealogies that we use and to express our superiority. And I, I see this in the form of elevating um, particular experiences as a Christian, particular authors as a Christian, particular pastors as a Christian, particular podcasts or books or denominations, or theological systems, all kinds of things where we go like, this is what I came out of, and this is what is important to me. And we're not sharing it because we want some people to understand why I have the perspective I did. We're sharing it because we think that someone should have that perspective because it's superior to theirs. And so we argue over things that aren't worthy of arguing over. And we celebrate what amounts to a man-made ancestry when the reality is it's a waste of time. To argue over it. And the only genealogy that really matters is that we matter to Christ, that we are part of Christ's family. And so that's where we're supposed to stay, but we don't. We talk about other things, we add them to our identity. And then he says dissensions. And dissensions are probably the most common thing that we tend not to avoid. Uh, many people engage in dissensions, and they're basically disagreements over personal preferences. And it can be the smallest things. In fact, most church splits, if you really dig down to what the church split is about, it's often about a personal preference. Literally, churches have split over, I don't like the color of the carpet. It should have been this. Why don't we have the cross at the front of the church rather than the side? Like stuff that you go, are you, are you kidding me? And they're like, no, we need the Christian flag on stage. And if we don't have it, we're not Holy. I mean, people have these arguments, and how do I know this? I have pastors shepherding churches that are having these arguments, okay? So the reality is, in the church, this looks like disputes and arguments and tensions created over the fact that we have different personalities, we have different worship styles that we appreciate, we have different decisions that we make, different philosophies, and so people come with their personal preferences, and if it's not met, they try to force their way to get it met. And the worst thing for people to do, so don't do this. Please, in the name of Jesus, don't do this. It's when you have a personal preference. That's just something that's important to you. Maybe it's the way we do communion. Maybe it's the kind of music we sing. Maybe it's the sermon. Maybe it's whether we have a youth group. Whatever it is, please don't baptize your personal preference in order to get God on your side. 
where you spiritualize it in such a way and you say, well, actually, this makes us more holy. This is what the Bible teaches, whatever. We can discuss that. But what I find is a lot of people just have their personal preferences and they just go, man, this is baptized and the only way to do it. Last thing he says to avoid quarrels about law. These are the kind of debates that um, really are about legalism. And legalism is kind of a misunderstood term. I feel like today people use it really poorly um, because probably they're confused by it. But a lot of people will claim that's legalistic. Maybe you've used that phrase before, like, oh, that's just legalistic. That's just legalistic. And I feel like some people throw that out as like the grand trump card to reject any or a particular call to obedience that they don't like. Like, I don't have to do that. That sounds legalistic if you say I do. Well, there are some things in the Bible that says you have to do this. Um, And if you struggle doing that, that's one thing. If you say, I don't have to do that because it's somehow legalistic, that's entirely another one. But true legalism is where people basically attach the obtaining of righteousness to something other than faith in Jesus. So this was happening in the churches, particularly to the Jews who were coming in and saying, hey, it's great that you love Jesus, but you have to be circumcised. It's great that you love Jesus, but you have to follow the Sabbath rules. It's great that you love Jesus, but you have to observe these feasts and eat these foods and all these things. And that was a big tension. Because they were arguing over whether the law applied or didn't, or whether Jesus was enough and those types of things. It's not legalistic to call people to good works. Paul does that in Titus a bunch. But it is wrong to call people to good works to obtain God's grace as opposed to calling people to good works in response to God's grace. That's when it becomes a problem. And it's like, not debating over that. Not even arguing that. I know where righteousness comes from. Don't try to throw something else in the bucket. Now, I actually believe that most of the debaters that Paul or Titus might encounter are actually rarely wolves. Sometimes they're goats, and by that I just mean unbeliever. That's how the Bible delineates. Sometimes they're really, and maybe usually, just really loud sheep who were never really taught like how, where, and what to agree to and disagree, how to disagree. They never were instructed. Like, how do you actually disagree with someone who's different than you about something I care about? Um, Romans 14 gives us really good insight into this. If you turn just to the right, if you're in Acts, if you're not, shame on you. Romans 14, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 14. This is a really helpful passage to, to really... like how what in culture, what in personal preference, like what is supposed to be, if it's important to me, does it have to be important to everybody else? And do I need to debate about it and argue over it? Here's what he says in terms of how to have relationships with different people who have different backgrounds and different perspectives and different passions. He said, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And that's not a commentary on vegetarians. The context in this case is the Christian, this is the early Christian church, right? They had all these, they're surrounded by idols, and they're making feasts before these idols. And so there's this food, and they are have the opportunity to partake of this food that's been sacrificed to idols. And some Christians are like, dude, we can't. We can't eat that food. That's like demon food. And others are like, 
demon food. There's no such thing as another God. Who cares? And so they're like, they're arguing over that, right? And this is the kind of thing they're dealing with. Christians can't do that. Yes, they can. Like, that happens all the time. And so he's like, chill out. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Like, we talk about cultural engagement. And whether that is, you know, I don't know, participating in certain things or abstaining from certain things. Like, there are going to be people in our church that go, I choose to participate in this and I'm okay as a Christian doing that. Others going, I don't think you should. Okay, so you're just never going to talk to each other again? You're going to like rebuke each other every time you see each other? What about the guy that's like, well, I'm, I'm abstaining from that because all Christians should or because you think you should? There's a difference. So Paul's trying to address that. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Before his own master, these stands or falls, and he'll be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes a day, observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Like, there are people who disagree with you about particular issues and believe that they're honoring the Lord in doing whatever it is they're doing or not doing. Just as you think you're honoring the Lord, and you can have a discussion, but not the kind of debate that leads to basically worthless conversation. Look at verse 17 in chapter 14. He says this, after saying that each one's going to give an account to himself to God, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And you can fill in the blanks. as eating and drinking are about the base level things you can do. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Like, keep the important things important. And don't get them confused with that which is not. So that's the debaters. But then there's another kind of person we call the divider. And this person is different in that they are creating a different kind of problem. They're not just draining leaders or, or frustrating people with conversation. They're actually creating factions. They're actually threatening the, um, the unity of the church. They're not just processing it privately in conversation and personally. They're actually doing very public, very public about what is going on. Um, essentially, a divider, or a, I say a different divider because it's based in these differences, it's the kind of member who, I would argue, and people have said this before, majors in minor issues. It takes a minor issue that may very well even be a biblical issue and makes it major. And so much so that it becomes um, divisive. About this person, Paul says something that's kind of shocking. And again, we're talking about what makes a healthy church and what churches should do. So think about this. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. Those are some strong words. Like if you read the Bible, read it slowly. Those are some strong words. There is some sense where like have nothing to do with them. What does that mean? We'll talk about that. Sometimes good leaders and good members 
need to protect the flock from a particular sheep. Titus is told that at times, you, Titus, or the leaders of these churches are going to have to confront an individual who is threatening the unity of the church. And while there is likely debate going on already, this person is moving past discussion into actually pursuit of division. And the word for division is an interesting word. I'll probably mispronounce it, but heretikos. It's the word or the place where we get heretic from. So we talk about divisions. We're usually talking about heresies. And by that, we're talking about theological, biblical disputes. And most heresies, if you didn't know, take actually a truth and then blow it up or pervert it. But it starts with something that is true. Now, this is not a fun thing to experience, and that being heresies and divisions coming up in your church. But did you know that the Bible says it's a very natural thing? Like, it should be expected, especially because we're full of different people. Um, we shouldn't fear, the apostle will tell us, that these things come up in the life of a church. It's not actually the sign of a bad church. It's the sign of health. Let me prove it to you. I love this. 1 Corinthians, right? Chapter 11. And when you turn to chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. See, I'm just going to order the Bible. If you get your Bible, you just keep turning pages to get there. Beautiful. 1 Corinthians, chapter 11. You'll start off at the very beginning, you'll see head coverings. What? Skip that part. Go to verse 17. Okay? Verse 17. Paul, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, even I think chapter parts of 15, but certainly those four are talking about the gathering of the church, the assembly of the church, what's going on. And he begins to talk about when they gather and when they're taking communion. It's really messed up. But he's talking about the nature of their gathering all together. And here's what he says in verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I don't commend you. So he spent some time commending them. Like, hey, you did what I told you to do. Now he's like, now let me tell you how you screwed up. He says, I don't commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for better, but for worse. What a horrible commentary on your church, right? When you guys come together, things get worse, right? Your gatherings, like everyone's doing great. And when you get together, it's like hate fest, 2017, problem. So he says, in the first place, because he has got quite a few things to say, but we'll just focus on this first one. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Same word. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Whoa. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There's a healthy aspect to these factions coming up so that those who are genuine may be recognized. Well, what does that mean? Genuine what? Well, genuine believers or perhaps genuine in believing the rest of the Bible and not just the one doctrine that you're making a big deal about of. 
Like, you know, there's those people that basically have the right doctrine, but they forget all the other verses about how to correct and how to love and how to be unified. The genuine are not only those with the right doctrine, but they're also the ones who hold their doctrine rightly. So there are false teachers who hold wrong views, but there are actually true teachers who hold wrong, right views wrongly. So those who have the wrong doctrine need to be corrected because they're being divisive, especially in the public way in which they are communicating that. And if they don't cease to be divisive, and it doesn't even mean they need to change their conviction. It means they need to quiet down. Stop being divisive. Stop instructing in ways that are antithetical to the gospel, perhaps, or to the doctrine of the church. They need to be removed from the church family if they don't stop. Now, this is the reality is there are doctrines and teachings that are worth dividing over. But there are also situations for people causing division that need to be separated. And it's not like an overnight process, it's not really quick. Right? Paul says, warn them once. Like, go to them and say, hey, look, you're teaching that which is divisive, you're being divisive in how you hold your doctrine, whatever it might be. It's very personal. It's very private. It's not like, hey, everybody, guess what? I confronted Todd today and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not how it goes. It's very slow. It's very intentional. It's very personal. But it's progressive. I warned you. You didn't stop. I'm going to warn you a second time. Look. Because the goal is not to like just get every bad person out. Root them out. Get them out. The goal is godly correction and restoration. So it's slow. Okay, I'm going to warn you. Hey man, I warned you before. You aren't stopping. And it says, if they do not cease, have nothing to do with them. Separate from them. In 1 Corinthians 5, gives us really kind of some details about this, how this plays itself out. The church in Corinth, I'm always, I always laugh when people say, I just want to go back to the early church. Like, you read 1 Corinthians? Like, it was really messed up. It's not much different than what we see today. So, sure, we're there. Good job. But like in 1 Corinthians 5, there's like all kinds of sexual morality in the church, and the church isn't doing anything about it. In fact, they're like celebrating it. And so Paul's like, yeah, that's going to stop now. And he says, you need to kick that guy out of the church. In fact, he even says, like, you need to give him over to Satan. Which is like, whoa, that's like serious. And they're like, you don't fellowship with people who basically say they're Christians and, and do the very opposite. Like, whoa, like, there's some serious to it. But you'll notice if you were to read it, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 6, 4 through 6. It does say, like, the purpose isn't just like, I'm going to punish you because we just hate you. And you're just a problem. It's like, give him over to Satan so that he will experience restoration. So his soul will be saved. Like, there's a goal in it. And it's not just root the bad people out. It's for the health of the church and the health of the individual. But if that doesn't happen in a church, if a church doesn't commit to godly, good discipline, you're going to have a disunified, broken, unhealthy church. It must also be said that those who have right doctrine but hold it wrongly, I think also need to be corrected. As I said, 
They may be right in their doctrines that they're arguing over, but they may be really wrong in the other verses about love and unity in the church. They are, if not actively, passively creating factions by basically just being either condescending or acting superior to those who disagree with them. So we have to confront whomever and whatever is dividing the church and not fear people leaving the church. Like, that's the big reason not to. I want, I want everyone to like us. I want people to like me. That's why we don't do personal confrontations. We see someone who's, you know, I claim to be a Christian. They're not living according to God's Word. Like, oh, I'm not going to say anything because I want to disrupt stuff. Like, biblically, you should disrupt stuff if you love them. And as a church, we have to do the same. But there's a temptation as a pastor, as a leader, as a member. Like, well, I don't want them to leave I mean, I, people are going to leave the church. It's been happening since the early church. Let me prove it to you, right? Apostle John, his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, speaking about people leaving the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all were not of us. That is not to suggest that everyone who leaves our church or any local church is not a Christian, but I will say time will tell whether that's true or not. A good church has good discipline in order to protect the purity of the gospel and the purity of the church. And some would argue that you should never confront in this way or ask people to leave. That what you're saying, you should actually say, look, you, you actually need to leave our church, not be part of this fellowship. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And some would argue, like, that's just not loving. How is that loving like Jesus? How is that patient like? I didn't say don't be patient. I didn't say don't be slow. I just said it comes a point where you might have to do that. Did you know Jesus commands that? He wrote letters to the churches in uh, the Revelation to John. I think there's nine of them. And maybe seven. I don't know. One is called Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. And he writes, he's like, this is Jesus. Let me tell you what's awesome about your church. Let me tell you what's horrible about your church. He's like addressing the churches, right? In Revelation 2.19, he talks to this church Thyatira and he says, I know your works. I know your love and faith and servants and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Right? He's like, you guys are awesome. You're loving. You're faithful. You're patient. You're demonstrating good works and like they're getting bigger and better and awesome. And he goes, but I have this against you. When Jesus says He has something against you, Best listen. He says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now whether it's a real woman or not, certainly a woman that is the spirit of this woman, Jezebel, you can read about in the Old Testament, who was a horrible lady. But he says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, speaking out spiritual, thing, spiritual things, teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. You know what Jesus just said? 
You've been too tolerant. He says, look, be patient, endure, be slow, but like at some point you go, done. Where Jesus says, you're not doing a good job because you put up with it too long. That's Jesus saying that. Now that doesn't give us license to go, that's it! Confront, 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 confront! But it does give us permission to confront in a way that's godly trusting that Jesus says if you don't, there's going to be a problem just as much if you do in the wrong way. Alright. Let's close on the most important part. So you got these two kinds of people which I pray we will avoid being a part of. But the church is full of different people who must agree to not perpetually debate their differences or divide over those convictions that are truly secondary. We learn a lot from the final words, as I said, which we often skip at the very end of Titus. We actually learn a lot from this final greeting. It says this in verse 12. He says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me, another group of people, send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be to you all. All right. If you spend any time in Paul's letters, you're going to understand or see that he talks about a lot of people. Paul is not Rambo going out doing his mission by himself. He has a team of people and that team changes over time. It's interesting that one letter, he talks about a guy named Demas. I think it's in Colossians, like, oh, Demas has been so awesome to me. And at the end of, I think it's 2 Timothy, he talks about how Demas has abandoned him and went off of the world. So the team changes, adjusts. At the end of Romans 16, there's a list of names of different people. Specific names. It says he has specific names for these guys. We don't have information on all of them, but we have some details on some of them to know that Artemis was probably the bishop in Lystra, which means he was a Greek dude. Probably that's where Timothy became a Christian. So he's got a different upbringing than a Jew does. Different life story. Raised differently to believe different things. you got Tychicus, who is uh, mentioned, I think, five or six times by Paul. He does all kinds of stuff. He's running letters. He's in prison with Paul at one point. He has a different role with Paul, serving differently. you got Zenos the lawyer. So he's a lawyer, likely a Jew. So raised differently, but also highly educated in the law at least. Apollos is incredibly gifted preacher. That was the big problem in Corinth. They actually started denouncing Paul like, yeah, Paul, you write good letters, but when you show up, you're not real impressive, right? And they're like, Apollos, dude, that guy can preach. And so like, you got these different guys with different gifts. Alright. And then all the people, he says, people with me. And again, you look at Romans 16, you got different people that Paul thanks for different things. And this whole team of people, all this represents the church. Different upbringings, different salvation stories, different giftings, different educations, different convictions, different passions, but yet all working together. That's a picture of the church. Let me prove it in a little more detail. 
You can turn there if you want. The last chapter of the uh, Gospel of John. And I don't remember, I heard this observation from a pastor, so I'm not making this up. Some more smart than me. Look, even that way that sounded, sounded dumb, right? Smarter than me uh, observed this, but I think it's a beautiful observation. And it's an illustration at the end of this book of the kind of community that Jesus has built the church to be. The passage records a time between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension. If you didn't know, there's about 40 days of time where Jesus was hanging out with His disciples and doing different things as He ministered and taught them. And having revealed Himself to His disciples in a very tangible way, He kind of would come and go. And so, at some point, Peter kind of is like, you know what, I want to go fishing. Maybe he's just like stressed out. Maybe he just wants to relax because the guy was raised as a fisherman, loved fishing, so he's like, I'm going to go fishing, guys. So, him and James and John, they go out fishing in the Sea of Tiberias. And you probably have heard the story, right? They're out in the boat, and they're fishing all night, and they don't catch squat, right? They're like, gnats are on there. And then they see this shadowy figure walking on the beach. He's like, hey, you guys catch anything? They're like, no, we didn't catch anything. Thanks for reminding us of that. Why don't you put your nets on the other side? Oh, Sandwalker's an expert in fishing now, huh? Like, we're, we're fishermen. We know how to fish. We fish our whole lives. Like, come on. Like, no, go ahead. Put it on the other side. It'll be cool. Whatever. So they throw their nets on the other side, and what happens? They're full, right? Teeming with fish. And Peter's like, that's a stinking Lord. Just like, boom! Just like dives in and starts swimming, right? Because like, it's Jesus, right? That's not even what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the boat. Who's in the boat? Peter, James, and John. They are friends for years. They are business partners for years. But then you got these other two dudes. It says Thomas and Nathaniel. We'll talk about these guys very often. Nathaniel was the guy, one of the first disciples of Jesus that was brought to him by Philip. So Philip meets Jesus like, dude, you're the Messiah. I'm going to go with my buddy Nathaniel. So he runs to get Nathaniel. I don't know if he did that, but it looks funny, right? So he runs to get Nathaniel. He goes, Nathaniel, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, seriously? The Messiah's from like Darrington? Really? Can anything good come out of this place? Like, no way. So he's really like, whatever. He's like, no, 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 no. He is. Come on, just come with me. Whatever. So he's like going. And as he's walking towards Jesus, Jesus yells out to him. He's like, ah! There's a dude with no deceit in him. And Thanos is like, I never even met you. Right? Like, I never even met you. Why, why would you say? He's like, oh, I saw you before Philip came and you were under the tree. And what does he say? You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Like, that's all it took. I saw you under the tree. Nathaniel's a little charismatic, that's how we say, right? A little experiential. All Jesus say, I, yeah, I saw you under the tree. Oh, he's worshiping. Then you got Thomas. Well, we all know the story of Thomas, right? Thomas is the skeptic. Thomas is the guy that, I mean, days, if not the same day after all the disciples saw Jesus, Thomas wasn't there. 
So the disciples are then with Thomas later, like, we saw, we saw Jesus. He's, he, he rose. He's alive. Like, we, we were there. What does Thomas say? You can just sense the, the skeptic in him. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place the finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, Jesus shows up. Hey, T, right there. Right here, man. Right? And what does he say? There's some cults that say like Thomas is swearing, literally. But he says, my Lord and my God. And my point in all of this is saying that in the boat, together, is the mystic and the skeptic. Right? Brought together, like, different perspectives, different passions, different ways of even relating to God. And yet, brought together in the same boat, in the same church. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel takes people that are different. We're different. We have different salvation stories, different giftings, all these different things about us, but they're not, God didn't call us together to debate about all our differences or even divide over them. He brought us together by His grace to display the manifold, right? The layer upon layer of His wisdom of what it looks like to have different people all saved by the grace of Jesus, all on mission together to make His name great. That's what this is about. And so when Paul's addressing his churches, he's so devoted to their unity. He's like, don't let the wrong things divide you. Celebrate what you have in common, your shared identity in Christ, and then embrace even how you guys engage with God differently. Because let's be honest, we often look down like, well, you're not enough like Nathaniel. You don't experience God like I do. Or you're not like Thomas. You're not thinking biblically and theologically and intellectually. Like, I, like We're just different. And guess what? Tom and Nate need each other. They do. Let me end with this verse out of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. You know, in order to have, like, be called to like, live humbly, it's because there's going to be tensions and differences to make us want to be prideful. Gentle, you can't just be gentle by yourself. Patient, right? With patience, that's going to be with people. Bearing one another in love, eager to do what? Maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then hear this last verse. I believe it's verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So instead of elevating the differences, perhaps we can celebrate and embrace the unique grace that you have 
and the unique perspective that you have that God has given you so that we can be shaped into the beautiful church and the healthy church that God wants us to be. Amen? Let's pray.